Also, still on chapter 3, as this is such a crucial chapter to the rest of not only the Bible, but human history. So today we're going to cover what is commonly called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. Gospel meaning good news. That passage is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And here's what it reads. I will put enmity... Between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this important verse also represents the first prophecy made in Scripture. So, it is both good news and a future promise of God at some point bringing forth from the human race someone who will rescue us from the circumstances of a fallen world and set things right that have been corrupted by evil. So if we go back to verse 14, here's what it describes. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So in verse 14a, we're going to interpret this to mean that Satan, we identified the serpent as Satan based upon passages like Revelation 12, 9 and 22, has his status before God removed from him that we read about and we talked about earlier in Ezekiel 28. He is considered of lower status even than the animals that God created. And then in 14b, we're going to interpret that to mean that Satan's activity is going to become relegated to the sphere of the earthly realm. He's no longer welcome in God's sphere of existence. And this is the point in the story where all hell begins to break loose. And I mean that literally. The planet begins to become a hellscape. Because this extremely powerful creature, no longer under the direction of God, begins to take his own evil agenda and execute it both on creation and on humankind. We can deduce from what we have discussed in our previous episodes that Satan is motivated by jealousy of human beings because God intended them to rule the planet as well as to elevate them to a place on his divine counsel. We can deduce that from Revelation 20, verse 4. He's also motivated by hatred and resentment of God for this plan, for making the plan in the first place, as well as removing what status he previously had. So he's jealous and he's resentful. Satan wants what humans were given, control of the planet. That's where he has to live now. And he doesn't want to be subordinate to anyone, including God himself, much less other human beings. Now, he needs human cooperation in order to achieve this. So his primary activity is tricking or deceiving people to cooperate with his agenda. 
That's what the text means by your seed. Humans who get in agreement with Satan's political agenda to rule the nations. And he's been quite successful at it. That's why Paul, the apostle, refers to Satan as the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And even Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world in John 12.31. That's why when Satan offers the kingdoms of this world to Jesus, when he is fasting in the wilderness in uh, Matthew chapter 4, he isn't lying. He has control of the kingdoms or nations or governments, if you will, of this world. And he can give control of those governments to whoever he pleases. That's exactly what the Bible predicts he's going to do with a character called the Antichrist at the end of the age. And that's why we call Satan's agenda a political agenda. In the episode where... Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He is clearly functioning as the second Adam, which he's referred to explicitly in the book of Romans. The text says he's going out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, just like Adam was tempted. As the second representative of the human race, Jesus the man was tempted with the gratification of three basic desires. Number one, the desire for physical pleasure. Number two, the desire to receive status before other human beings. And then number three, the desire to have control of the governments of this earth. Now, listen, hear me on this. This is important. What Satan tempts the man, Christ Jesus, with is not only his own destiny, but ultimately the destiny of humanity. There are very powerful, God-ordained desires lodged deep within the human spirit that want to become gratified. And so this is what Satan manipulates in humans. Very deeply held, God-given desires, the chief of which is to fulfill our destiny. What is my purpose in life? Jesus' destiny is to rule the nations of the earth. That is what the scripture teaches. He's going to do when he returns as a resurrected man, human being, to the earth. The scripture also clearly teaches that that is the destiny of those who exercise faith in his saving work. That's Jesus' destiny as a human being. It is in conjunction with our relationship with him, our destiny as well. So the particular temptation for Jesus to receive a shortcut to his destiny, that is, to gratify his deepest desires or longings to rule the nations without having to pay the price of submitting to the suffering of the cross. That is the particular temptation that Satan is offering to Jesus. Now, in case you think that's a stretch or an exaggeration, I want to refer you to Luke chapter 13, 34 through 35, and as well Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, where Jesus is pictured groaning and weeping with desire over Jerusalem. He has a deep longing that leads to groaning and weeping over the nations of the earth 
particularly Jerusalem, because that's the center from which he will take hold of and rule all the nations from that city. Now let's look at another scripture describing the promised bruising or crushing of the serpent's head. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning, that is deviating from God's plans and purposes, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Which leads us to the next question. What are the works of the devil? His primary agenda is to recruit humans, just like he did with Jesus. To participate in a shortcut to receive gratification for their God-given desires. He finds out what people's deepest longings and desires are, and he offers to gratify them without them having to pay the price. To get what they deeply want and long for without having to wait for it in God's timing. This is especially true with desires such as sexual desires. It's easy to identify with this. People want to satisfy their longing for closeness and intimacy that comes with sexual pleasure, but they don't want to wait until they're married. Duh. Of course, that decision opens up a whole Pandora's box of dysfunction, not just for themselves, but for all of society. That's a common experience that people go through. People want the finer things in life, but they don't want to wait until they have the money. It's the story of Esau and Jacob later on in Genesis when Esau has been out hunting and he's so hungry he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew to his brother Jacob. Now what is most important here is the shoe that's on the other foot. How exactly does the work of Jesus destroy the works of the devil? And so I want to cover that by reading from an article that I had told uh, those of you who are a part of the church. I told you about my trip to Big Bend uh, early last week, and I took an article with me that I reread. I had already read it once, but I reread it because it was so profound. It, it, I needed to process it again by reading it and take more notes on it. And so uh, I wanted to share some excerpts from that article. It's kind of a lengthy article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to jump around a little bit, so I hope it, it makes sense. But the title of the article is The Haste of Sin and the Slowness of Salvation. An Interpretation of Irenaeus on the Fall and Redemption. So, uh, Irenaeus, this is going to share Irenaeus's understanding of salvation. Now, this is going to sound different from the typical American song and dance about saying a prayer and getting saved. In, a, in the United States, we have inherited the Western mindset, the Western tradition. This is going to uh, sound a little bit different to you than what you've been told we've been told a very truncated and I would say juvenile version of what salvation is and what it looks like. Uh, on the other hand, if you were a part of the Eastern Church, the Eastern tradition, what we are going to say would sound very familiar. This is the the standard view of salvation that we're going to hear from Irenaeus uh, 
for those in the Eastern Church. Now, Irenaeus would have been one of the earliest church fathers. So uh, just to put it in context, the Apostle John was the last living apostle. He lived until around 90 AD. A man by the name of Polycarp was directly discipled by the Apostle John. And Irenaeus is from Polycarp's hometown and would have sat at the feet of Polycarp. And so Irenaeus would have been very close to the original apostles. Jeff Vogel is the man who wrote this article, and he is going to be sharing his understanding of how Irenaeus viewed salvation. Here's what he says in his article. The aim of this article is to show how Irenaeus incorporates patience into the economy of salvation. Haste, I argue, is at the root of sin for Irenaeus, while waiting, in a certain sense, is sin's countermeasure. In addition, I show that waiting never truly comes to an end for Irenaeus. It is the proper disposition of the human being with regard to God from the moment of creation to his or her full incorporation into the divine life. Now, heads up for a future podcast, full incorporation into the divine life. The term they use for it in the Eastern Church is theosis. Theosis is the goal of salvation in the Eastern Orthodox tradition that refers to the divinization of human beings. And a common saying amongst the early church fathers was that God became a man so that man might become God. Now, that's a pertinent statement to make in regards to Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve, his particular temptation of Adam and Eve uh, from the text. And in regards to how Satan tempted Jesus. Satan tempted Jesus with his God-ordained destiny. In the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve with their God-ordained destiny. So continuing with the article now. According to Irenaeus, the fall is a mistake about means more than ends. Though God has always intended to give human beings a share in the divine nature. Now, Being created in the image and likeness of God means that, in some sense, we're like God. That's what the word Christian means, Christ-like. So again, this isn't a stretch. Again, continuing with the article. It is necessary for them to become accustomed to bearing it over time. That is, the divine nature. Instead, they forfeit this opportunity by trying to become gods too quickly. They try to take what can only be given to grasp what can only be graciously bestowed on them. In other words, in their effort to take the divine life early, human beings render themselves unfit for participation in it because the divine life is essentially only receivable. It proves elusive to all clutching, clinging, and grasping. This graspiness, the fundamental problem in the way human beings comport themselves in relation to God, 
Though they have an original capacity to be incorporated into the divine life, they lose it through their impatience, what I call the haste of sin. Now we're going to skip over a little ways. Uh, and we're going to read from Irenaeus. Irenaeus is going to be expounding upon if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, why couldn't he have just created human beings perfect? It's a good question. Most people wrestle with that question. And Irenaeus' point is that God is the only uncreated being. Whenever he creates, by definition, that creation is not uncreated. It is created. So it is impossible for God to create something exactly like himself. He says, even omnipotence cannot bring into existence something uncreated. So, with this answer, Irenaeus may be speaking about a different kind of per perfection than a reasonable person might assume was meant by the question. In other words, the question is, why aren't created beings uncreated? But, why are they subject to temptation? Or, why must, why must they be made to grow over time? Irenaeus offers what looks to be an answer to these latter questions at the end of the passage. Human beings are not given perfection from the beginning because of recent origin. They are unaccustomed to and unexercised in bearing it. They're inexperienced. This comes out more clearly a little later in the text. And here's a quote from Irenaeus. God had the power at the beginning to grant perfection to man. But as the latter was only recently created, he could not possibly have received it. Or even if he received it, could have contained it. Or containing it, could he have retained it. Being newly created, Adam and Eve were too weak to bear the fullness of perfection, they could only mature into God-bearers over a period of time. Again, here's more. I'm skipping over a little bit. Now, it was necessary that man should in the first instance be created, and having been created, should receive growth, and having received growth, should be strengthened, and having been strengthened, should abound, and having abounded, should recover, and having recover, should be glorified, and being glorified, should see his Lord. For God is he who is yet to be seen. And the beholding of God is productive of immortality. But immortality renders one near to God. So in the Genesis story, Adam and Eve are shown trying to take what God was going to give them anyway once they were capable of keeping it. In their impatience, they cut themselves off from the life of God by forsaking the very condition necessary to participate in it. In due time, they would have become accustomed to bearing perfection, but their lunge for immediate completion closed them to the operation of the life-giving spirit. Since it is the vocation of human beings to come to bear God, to bear the image of God, this closure alienated them from their own true being. Now, skipping over to uh, 
the work of Jesus Christ as a human being, learning to bear the image of God over time patiently in an uncorrupted way. Here's what the article goes on to say about that. Only in submitting thus could the Son counteract the tendency towards haste that has affected human beings since Adam. The tendency of human beings, this is me talking now, to want to take shortcuts to the gratification of their desires, even at the expense of others. This is wreaked havoc on the landscape of human history. Jesus is demonstrating for us how to counteract that and abide in a posture of receiving the saving grace of God, which is simply restoring the full image of God within us. It is for, Back to the article. It is for this reason that Irenaeus insists on the need for Christ to have passed through every stage of human existence his willing endurance of conception, birth, baptism, growth to maturity, which for Irenaeus means his arrival at old age, his subjection, old age being in his 30s, that's, that's maturity, his subjection to temptation, betrayal, and finally even death, all of which occurred without sin, together constitute the saving act of God in Christ. For Irenaeus, the event of Jesus remakes humanity by its enactment of archetypal human situations in such a way as to direct them Godward. In the person of Jesus Christ, one finds the means by which the capacity to grow towards God has been restored to humanity. That is access to the tree of life, metaphorically. The model of how to receive this growth, the end result of the process of growing, which is full maturity, perfection, theosis, whatever you want to call it, full sanctification. You know, as Methodists, that's the language we like to use. But it's the full development of the image of God so that we can actually bear and retain the weight of being kids, being family members, bearing the full image. What Back to the article. What is revealed in Christ is not only the proper disposition of the human creature with regard to God, but the goal towards which this openness of the Father leads, namely glorification. Christ is not only the man who waits on God for growth, but, but the first person in whom this growth is fully realized. Prior to his coming, the likeness of God into which human beings are created to grow was not known. We had never seen that before. Jesus gave us the picture which is precisely what tempted them to lunge for immediate completion, causing them to lose the similitude to God. With the coming of Christ, however, both the process and the goal of human growth have been rem rendered permanently visible to human beings. So the article goes on to point out how uh, being saved simply places us in a position to resume the process of growing towards bearing the full image of God. And so being saved is just the starting point 
And the process of growth is something the Spirit works in us little by little, day by day, in imperceptible ways, as we faithfully wait on God in the means of grace. Again, whether it looks like anything is working or not, whether it looks like it's benefiting us or not. You know, some people say, it's like, I don't know why I bother going to church. I don't even remember what the preacher preached last week. Well, it's like, well, yeah. Do you remember what you had for breakfast last week? Well, no. Does that mean the meal was unimportant? (laughs) You see? We wait on God in the means of grace, the means of grace being gathering together for worship with other believers, growing in our understanding of Scripture, spending time submitting our minds to hearts to to God's influence in prayer privately, uh, receiving communion, you know, the typical things. We're staying engaged in discipleship, whether we're bored, whether it looks like it's benefiting us or not, because we do it by faith, waiting on God, as little by little, he develops and grows the image of God in us. A lot of times it's just like when you're a little kid, you think you'll never grow up, right? And there's nothing you can do to rush the process. You just have to wait on the process. Same way with the Spirit, where God is working in salvation to bring us to the finish line of being capable of bearing the full image of God. And usually that doesn't happen till the very end of life for most people, as John Wesley would have taught us. So we'll stop the, uh, we'll stop the podcast there. The, the haste of sin and the slowness of salvation. Are you waiting on God? Are you faithfully waiting on God? For most of us, that's the biggest test of life, is remaining faithful when it looks like nothing is happening. Are you doing that? It's very important. Uh, People who start taking a casual attitude towards their discipleship for whatever reason are fools. They're fools. It is the wisest thing a person can do to keep their hand to the plow Continue moving forward with God, even in seasons of dryness and difficulty. So uh, we will cover the topic of theosis possibly next week. I'm not 100% sure about that, but uh, I know that's going to be a new topic, and it probably scares a lot of people, but it was, it is a, a common understanding of the Eastern Orthodox Church <coughs> of the goal of salvation. And it was a not uncommon topic in amongst the early church fathers. So we will discuss it a little bit more. As Methodists, we refer to it as glorification. But Wesley uh, would have received would have received his understanding of that from the early church fathers and, and their view of the goal of salvation. So that'll be t- a topic for a future episode. Hope you have a blessed day. Love you. Talk to you soon again. Be blessed. Bye.